Good afternoon to each of you. It's good to be together today and to sing those glorious uh, praises that focus on the Advent, but really some of them could be sung any time of year, of course, um, uh, and what a blessing it is. And I hope you love Advent season. I sure do. You know, we think of the first coming of Christ, Him coming into the world. It's, a, it's, it's for many of us, a very joyous time, one of the happiest times of the year, I've heard people say. Um, but for some, maybe it, we might substitute the word happy for the most stressful time of the year, right? Because you're hustling and bustling and you're busy and you got this thing and that thing and this party and this gift to hunt down. Or maybe it's a painful time of year for some. Um, painful in the sense of sad. Maybe you've lost a loved one, a grandparent around the holiday season. And so every time Christmas comes around, you remember grandpa who passed the week before Christmas and that kind of thing. But our focus can be clouded also by what, what, what Christmas is all about, by all of the, the media and the, the, the noise that's going on around there. You know, the increase in price of Christmas trees and hunting down the right gift. And now it's kind of gone to online shopping, but you find the perfect gift you want for your husband and it's floating on a boat off Long Beach. So you ride in the card, honey, you need to lose weight anyway, so you can swim out to the boat, pick up your gift and swim back. No, but, uh, you know, and, and so we can get distracted. But what we celebrate, the great truth of Jesus Christ coming into the world. The, the theological term is the incarnation. He took on flesh. In fact, the Apostle John says in the very first chapter, and the Word, right, the Word was with God and all of that from eternity past, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those four words, the Word became flesh, are packed so full of of the reality of God becoming a man. So, is God the Father in a rocking chair in heaven? No, God is spirit, right? He does not have a body like, like you and I. We know that from our catechism questions. But... The Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's as though the invisible became visible for the first time as He became flesh. The one that created all things entered His creation. These are theological truths that are hard to wrap our minds around and things that are worthy of meditation. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus, as it were, became the the God-man. Some have that confused. Well, when Jesus came into the world, He just became one of us like everyday humans, right? That are sinful. He no longer was God. No, He was 100% God and 100% man. Full deity, total humanity, yet in one single person. Our London Baptist Confession of Faith on Christ the Mediator, chapter 8, develops this very thoroughly if you want a refresher and something to read this afternoon. All of the historical events concerning Jesus are vital to his person and his mission to save sinners. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And so as we go back, back before Christ came into the world, to the book of Isaiah, we see that this is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus Christ would even be born. In fact, there's several prophecies about Christ, including Isaiah 53, which depicts the, the sufferings and death that he would endure, almost as though Isaiah is sitting, as it were, at the foot of the cross just recording it. It's, it's in such accurate detail, and yet penned over 700 years before Christ had come. There's more about Christ and his work in the book of Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. And so we're going to be focusing on chapter 9. If you want to find your place back there, I wanted it read in your hearing, and I'm going to read it again just so we can be a little bit more familiar with it. And um, I'm going to begin at 822 because it sets that context. In other words, the last verse in chapter 8, and we'll read through verse 7. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he will make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, in the gladness of harvest and as men when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden of the staff on the shoulders and the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for the 66 books of the Holy Bible that are God-breathed, that are inspired by you, that we can trust and stake our life on every single word in this book. And we thank you even for the mystery of prophetic texts such as this, spoken hundreds of years before you sent your own dear Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Give us understanding, Lord. Help us to wrap our minds around the wonder of the incarnation and even these terms that are applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at the world today, we see corrupt governments all around. 
And January 16th in Canada, there is an anti-conversion therapy law going into effect by which you cannot counsel someone that is in the LBQT, LGBT, uh, Q, and then on and on and on, that you're not able to counsel them about that that's a sin. You can't even call that a sin from the pulpit. We had a meeting with about 50 pastors with, through Reformed Baptist Network because we have churches in our network in Canada. And this is a real thing. They're, they're trying to decide, what do we do? Certainly, we're not going to modify the message, right? But to be wise as serpents and perhaps removing taglines from a website or videos that might be floating out there, maybe to consider not to live stream anymore some of these churches, lest the government be looking and waiting to hear that one thing. Wicked governments can be found everywhere. Uh, look at Australia, look at New Zealand. One new little case, not a death, a case, and a whole city of three million on lockdown. Okay, that's tyranny. I'll say it right here. That's tyranny. That's ridiculous. Okay, we see it all around us. Can any good and godly government be found anywhere? Just think in every time of history. Mankind has sought a righteous form of government, but the depravity of men's heart lead it to go astray. It has made it utterly impossible to have a good and righteous government. Look at the pharaohs of Egypt. What did they do? They wanted pyramids, so they said, we'll enslave the people to build the pyramids, right? The Assyrians introduced new depths of human brutality into the government, leaving piles of corpses and skulls around their city walls. All of these wicked things, the Greeks under Alexander the Great sought to spread the fruits of Greek wisdom, but to no avail. The Roman Empire brought a stable government and a great road system and propped up with overwhelming power of their legions. You can look at all the different governments throughout the, you know, church history the last 20 centuries but in our text here in chapter 9, especially in verses 6 and 7, it predicts the perfect ruler that will come onto the scene. That all the governments will rest upon his shoulders. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect ruler of the world. The government will be on his shoulders. So let's consider this. I'm going to take verses 2 to 5 under our first point. Great gladness declared and described. First of all, you see there in verse 2, look at the first two lines. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. What a glorious contrast that is. Those that were in darkness would see this great light. The previous chapter ended with darkness and gloom. The Assyrians had just defeated the, uh, the people of God and Judah there. Remember, if you know the book of Isaiah, that the people continued to go back to idolatry. And so finally, what, what, what God does is He says, I'm going to use the foreigners, your enemies, as a rod of reproof to spank you to drive sense into you. And so He allows the Assyrians to defeat them so that they might repent. And they do. And so that's the idea here. The people were going after occult wisdom. They were using mediums and rejecting the wisdom of God. And so the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the, as it were, the Galilee of the nations, so the Gentiles, the other nations, right? 
uh, these, these Gentiles is called a humble land and a people walking in darkness. Walking without hope in this world and without God. You see, Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders, beginning in that dark region in Galilee 700 years later when Jesus came onto the scene. In fulfillment, the people walking in darkness saw a great light. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And so, um, I also read this week that uh, up in the North Pole, where as you know, as you should know at least, if you have any sense, but uh, during this time of year, actually, it's pitch dark. There is no sunshine for a period of months. Did you know that? Because the earth is on an axis, right? And so... When that time of year comes around, and what happens is the people have a tradition, when the expected day was about to dawn, they would send messengers to go up to the highest point of the hills to watch. And when they saw the first streak of day after months of darkness, they'd put on their brightest possible apparel and embraced each other with a cry, Behold the sun, S-U-N, right? Behold the sun. And so the people in the North Pole are in a great darkness for a period of months and they're looking for that light. How much more we who walk in darkness apart from being enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember in the synagogue in Galilee, Jesus stated that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. In fact, I just want to turn there. If you'd go back to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4. This is very early um, in Jesus' ministry, um, right after the temptation. And it says, I'm going to read 14 to 21. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him was spreading throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel or good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind and to set free those that are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable time of the Lord, the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book or scroll better, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. That term is like they could not take their eyes off of him in the the manner in which he read. And then what does he say? He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so there, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The northern parts and kingdom chronologically from this, this judgment from Assyria, now the strong contrast This gloom gives way to light. And then back in Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 3, we have the next section. Joy, exceeding gladness is the result. You shall multiply the nation. This is is still prophetic, but looking after the captivity, which would be 
in the next 150 years or so. Yeah, about 150 years. Um, it's doing quick math in my head. But you, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. In what way? As the gladness of harvest time, right? You've, you've, you've plowed the field. You've planted the field. And finally, harvest time has come. It's a time of feasting and rejoicing. They even had feast for this time. And then as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, as men give high fives to each other, we were victors, we conquered them, and now we have the spoil, the fruit of our labors, as it were, to divide among us. Isaiah 54 and verse 1 and 2, I want to read that for us as well, because I think this is tied to it shout for joy this is the fertility of zion and multiplying shout for joy O barren one you who have born unto you who have born no child break forth in joyful shouting and cry aloud you who have not travailed and the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of a married woman says the lord notice this part enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen the cords, and strengthen your pegs. And you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will resettle in desolate cities. That's speaking of the expansion of the kingdom of God. It's speaking of the expansion of, of the actual literal land, but figuratively, the expansion of the kingdom of God. This gladness is um, increased with likened to this harvest time and a dividing of the spoil, but also think of this gladness in your presence. That's why we love public worship. It's not as though God visibly manifests Himself up here, but this is about the closest we're going to get to God. It's through the public worship that He has ordained for us to engage in. And then this whole idea of dividing the spoil, remember he says, well that's actually in the next verse, um, the rod of the oppressor at the battle of Midian. Do you remember that battle at Midian? You remember how, how, um, how there was 32,000 soldiers, it was cut down to 300, and, and, and they were victors. The oppressive Midianites uh, you know, against Gideon and his men in the same way. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has defeated Satan's unbreakable yoke of sin and death. Um, Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that's incarnation language, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, even the devil. So, we who were enslaved to Satan through fear and death have now been released to serve God with great joy. In verses 4 and 5, you can see the, the little word for, for, for. So it's all building victory uh, that, that is here. The victory over oppression and tyranny. The victory over war is verses 4 and 5. And then, so that takes us to verse 6a. This unique conqueror who works the glorious victory in verses 1 to 5 is revealed as a child born 
and a son given. Described unforgettably in a string of four couplets that mingle his humanity and his deity together and weds them together. But first of all, the incarnate Son of God and his humiliation. It says there, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. A child born, how would that child be born? Well, you just go back to chapter 7 and verse 14, if you know Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, Luke 1, right? We see that fulfillment and how he worked all that out. His his humanity is clearly seen in these terms, child and son, right? Speaks even of of a weakness, of a infant, of a child. Now, why did he come? Just so we could decorate our homes with tinsel and ornaments and and you know, give gifts to each other and all of that. Of course not. He came on a rescue mission, right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. And then he goes on to say, of whom I am foremost. You see, as you mature in Christ, you are you see so much of your own sin. You're, you're loving Christ more because you see how many sins he's died for. He came into the world on a rescue mission. He came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world if you are one of his as the glorious angel. And Luke 2 says, today in the city of David, a Savior is born for you and for you. Right? It's, it's, it's for us, his people. The Son came uh, and it's, so it's born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All three terms there uh, being wedded together there with the announcement of the angel. Uh, Steve read for us from Matthew 1. He will save his people, what? From their sins, right? We needed rescuing from our sins. We're, we're sinners by We're sinners by nature. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. We're sinners by practice because we we still do those things that do not honor God and glorify God. This is why Christians celebrate Christmas. Because we're reflecting on He came on a rescue mission to save unworthy me and unworthy you. Jesus Himself said He came to Remember that with the Pharisees and, and, and the, the interchanges through the Gospels and um, that he came to seek and save that which was what? Lost, right? And, and in another place, he talks about that he comes for those that are sick. Those who are well need no doctor. And he's referring to the Pharisees because the Pharisees thought themselves so polished and well and says, those that are well don't, don't need a Savior, essentially, is what he's saying there. But those that are sick. The world is consumed with greed and pride and all manner of covetousness. During this time of year, we should be consumed with meditating on the person of Christ, but also his rescue mission to save sinners. We should be consumed with that as we think about the plan of redemption from eternity past. 
of which the Father and the Son and the Spirit covenanted together to create a people and to redeem that people for his own prized possession. There is a son given to us, Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So not just so it's given to us, but we know it's not given to redeem the fallen angels. One third of all the angels swept out of heaven because they followed Lucifer, the devil. There's no hope of redemption for them. One sin, they're out. No hope of redemption. But He came for us, humanity. where He set His eternal love upon us. You see this mingling of, you think of the Christ and His humanity, right? But, but His deity, that as we'll see here, He's called Mighty God, right? As you think of those two things, I think of also how Christ is displayed in Revelation 5 as a lamb. A lamb for the slaughter, right? The crucified lamb. The lamb that was crucified from before the foundation of the world, John would say in Revelation. But you remember that scene in Revelation 5, but then he turns and he sees a lion of the tribe of Judah. So you've got what appears to be weakness, but with great power, humanity, and great deity. So in the same breath, Isaiah tells us that He's a child that is born. But then he goes on to identify him as mighty God and everlasting Father. So let's look at verse 6b through 7, the incarnate Son of God and His exaltation. For a moment now, I want you to lay aside preconceived images of Jesus. Maybe some of you, if you're from a Roman Catholic uh, upbringing, maybe it's that crucifix that hung in your you know, dinette or whatever, or your grandmother's house, if maybe, you know, um, most of you are younger than me, so maybe you don't, you wouldn't have that hanging there, but uh, certainly that's a vivid thing in my mind, which I've had to rip out of my mind, but we need to allow Scripture to give us the paint strokes of Jesus, not the details of His face, not the color of His skin, not how big His nose was, but who He was as a person. And Scripture does a beautiful job right here. Isaiah just says, there's a child born to us, there's a son given. Let me paint you a picture of what that looks like. Brush stroke after brush stroke after brush stroke, and it comes into clear vision. This child grows up. We need to look beyond the baby in the manger. When we rented the Lutheran church, they had three or four mangers all around, so I could always just point to like these little babies that they had in mangers, but uh, there's not one here. But anyway, we need to look past the baby in the manger. The government will rest upon his shoulders. Isaiah 22 and verse 22, there's so many scriptures just within Isaiah. Then I will set the key to the house of David upon what? His shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. You see, Jesus at last is the answer to the quest for the perfect and lasting government. His shoulders will bear the weight of them all. Remember what Jesus said at the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. And you say, well, wait a minute. If he's really in charge and reigning in the perfect government, 
Why do we see what's happening in Canada and Australia and in the United States? Why do we see that? Well, remember the eschatological term that we often use. There's the already and the not yet. He definitely is reigning. He brought his kingdom here. That's why souls continue to get saved. But the full manifestation of that is yet future and could be rather soon. Jesus said uh, in John 5, all judgment has been given to the Son in order that all may honor the Son. So we believe that he is sovereign, right? Otherwise, you've got you've to create some kind of God that is not in control of all things, right? But we believe he's sovereign. He's absolutely in control. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day, because we could say, well, why are you tarrying, right? Well, um, we need to remember he is sovereign and in control. So now, let's, let's look at these, these couplets or pairs of words that are shown here to show the dual nature of Christ. First of all, his name is called Wonderful. Christ is indeed wonderful. His compassion, his tenderness, his love. Remember how when, when he saw, when he, before he fed the 5,000, and he's been preaching all day, they've had nothing to eat. It says that he, he felt compassion for the people. That means deep down in the gut, when the leper wanted to be healed, he felt compassion for him. Christ is indeed wonderful. Wonderful refers to the ability to work supernatural signs, uh, similar to Exodus 3 and verse 20. Think of his person, his compassion, his love, his birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his interceding for us. And then, wonderful counselor from all eternity. He's been God the Father's, as it were, counselor with the Spirit. He, he gives wise advice today. How does he counsel you today? Well, it's not, you know, picking up some pet rocks and going down by the water and discerning in between the splashes what God might be saying to you. It's not sucking on some grave somewhere, as some have done in the past. It's through his word. He's given us, he has spoken, right? Through his word. And we can take that to the bank. It says in Colossians that in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Next, what? This child that is born to us is mighty God? I mean, how, how much wider can the chasm possibly be? This, this crystallizes, helps to crystallize something of the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus will have a human body, but what is also called mighty God. Mighty shows something of strength, of tenacity, of force, of intensity of having great might and being powerful and strong, possessing impressive power, right? We, we might think of a sovereign king. He holds all things together by the word of his power, it says in the word of God. So you think of this mighty God 
This mighty God that can save to the uttermost, right? Isn't it glorious when you see people come to faith? We've had the last year glorious testimonies of faith in the waters of baptism here. And then even to see in Santiago, Chile, those 10 baptisms that an Arbinet missionary down there was able to enjoy on one day. A church that had dwindled down to 20 people with about 100 now, including children. But 10 of them wonderfully saved just in the last recent months. I saw a testimony of a church in Florida where they had four or five baptisms, but one of them was a 75-year-old man. God saves. Sometimes young, sometimes old, never exactly the same way, but He saves by the blood of Christ each and every time. When one comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you have sinned, you've broken God's law, and you will face His judgment if you do not repent, God is pleased to convert. He takes those heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, takes it out and puts in a heart of flesh. It's a beautiful picture of conversion. He's, he's the only one that can take that stony heart out by the power of His Spirit. So, we will see the infinite power of Jesus Christ at His second advent. We're celebrating His first advent. Looking forward to the second advent when Jesus comes again in great power. This time, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. There will be trumpets. He will come as a victorious warrior with His mighty angels separating those, the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats. And that will be a glorious scene. We will look at him then and say, truly, that's mighty God coming. And then he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. Eternal Father. Everlasting Father, some translations say. Now, Father, we know that term. We use that term all the time, right? It's, it's, it's very humanly, as it were. But this, put with eternal, makes it nothing short than supernatural and it doesn't necessarily mean you say well wait a minute pastor kurt wait i thought we had father son and spirit in the holy trinity we don't think like that necessarily the son is basically being called eternal father in the sense that he is the protector he's a defender he's the one that cares for he supplies our needs he tenderly loves just as it says in psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children. Jesus also said in John 10, I and the Father are one. One in purpose, not one in person. Okay, One in purpose. I and the Father are one. In other words, we are completely united. Everything that we do is is mutually agreed on and what we do there's no division then he goes on prince of peace this is the very thing that other governments and kings can never bring about because of sin and wickedness but as king jesus he preserves peace as he sees fit he commands peace as well he creates peace in his kingdom and remember the context war oppression, darkness, and he brings peace like only he can do. What does that peace look like? Well, it's first of all, when we're born again and we're saved, we finally have peace with God, right? 
The guilty conscience can be wiped away. You can have assurance that your sins are paid for. But also there's a sense in which once we're in Christ, we have horizontal peace as well. Peace with man. Jesus said in the upper room discourse, John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the worlds do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This prophecy in chapter 26 will go on to say, the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace. Another promise. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul told the Ephesians, speaking of Jesus, he is our peace. You have Christ dwelling on the inside. You have got peace with him. So he's a sovereign king. His humanity is deity wedded together in those terms. And then finally in verse 7, let's get back to what does his rule look like? What does his dominion look like? What does his kingdom look like? Let's read it again. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, his rule and dominion, his kingdom, basically. Let's point out different aspects of this. First of all, it is his kingdom. He possesses it. It is not a shared kingdom. He rules it in his righteousness and for the glory of himself alone. As we see here, it is an increasing kingdom, right? No end to the increase of this. It advances not by violence, not by war, not by bloodshed, but by peace. Isn't that amazing? There will be no increase to his government or of peace. It's an everlasting dominion. The promise and very important text we're going to go to in a minute, Second Samuel 7, I'll just read it for now, verse 16. And this is the Davidic covenant, right? To David, um, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's a covenantal dominion. It, 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 it it's, comes down from the throne of David. In fact, just turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Making you work just a little bit. Let's get this in its fuller context so we'll understand that Christ is the legitimate heir as why it's mentioned in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, okay, beginning in verse 12. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you in the bloodline and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, 
as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what's the context of this? David wants to build him a temple. David sinned. There was a lot of bloodshed. He said, your son, your descendant will build. Solomon builds that incredible temple, right? Which you can see in 1 Kings 4, 5, 6, and 8. 6, 7, and 8. Um, and so this has fulfillment to Solomon initially, but ultimately to Christ in the line. And that's why the angelic announcement makes that very, very clear. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. That is a repeated theme throughout the Old and New Testament. He is the legitimate heir. Actually, in Isaiah 11 and verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and the branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This idea of a, 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 a shoot springing from the stem of Jesse is another term as a descendant of David. It is not only his dominion, an ever-increasing, a covenantal, it's a righteous dominion. The prince himself is just. He bestows righteousness on the members of his kingdom, he not only establishes it, but he upholds it. And how does he do it? With justice and righteousness. Do you see that? He, he will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. It's a well-managed kingdom. It's perfect in all respects. The writer of the Hebrews quoting the Psalms says in 1.8, but, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness as a scepter of your kingdom. And then related to all of these, it's an everlasting kingdom, which we've already talked about. The angelic announcements mention that. It's mentioned even here. And lastly, it's a certain and unshakable dominion. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Judah's condition was desperate. The Assyrians had just come in. There was great darkness. There was great sadness. But there was this great promise. And how do they know that this is going to come about? It's the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes it. It's of the Lord of hosts. He accomplishes this. It's not ushered in by sinful man. It's not you know, the, the Senate and the House of Representatives getting together. How are we going to come up with this utopia or any other kingdom? It's ushered in by the Lord Himself. So, a couple points of conclusion. Now we've got a little clarity of that painting, brushstroke after brushstroke, right? This is somebody to be worshipped. It's not just a baby to say, well, isn't that cute? This is somebody that... that that deserves our utter worship. So, as we think about what to meditate on in your devotions, 
Think about these awesome titles given to Jesus that we have in this chapter. Think about what's the greatest gift of all. First of all, if you're in Christ, it's your salvation and to worship this Christ. Think about each of these terms in turn. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Allow each word to have time of marination. You know how you marinate a good steak or good meat? Let marinate, meditate upon these terms as you think about what this text is saying to us. Secondly, resolve to obey this Jesus, your King, more and more by faith. Right? To bring Him honor and glory. And, and, and again, don't think about the features of his face, that crucifix or even the 99 cent store. Maybe it's a dollar 25 store now, I don't know, but, but there's no inflation. Um, but you know, the little image that's there on the, on the candle. No, no, no. This, these are the things we need to think about as we think about Christ and what he looks like. God's word says to those, who are struggling with sin, who are not only struggling with sin, but resisting God. And they want to just keep going and enjoying their sin. There's great warnings for you. But a promise here in Isaiah 59. Notice I've tried to stay in the book of Isaiah. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is His ear so dull that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You see, you've got to put off that sin. You've got to cry out for mercy. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. You must repent of your sins and confess your sins. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here today, will you come to Bethlehem and believe? that this Christ, newborn King, is indeed these terms that we've been looking at and that His government is sure and one you want to be a part of. This is the account of His birth. And of course, we know He went to the cross because He came on that mission. I'll end with this little hymn. The Prince of Peace came down to earth to bring peace and goodwill The angels sang with joy and mirth on Bethlehem's silent hill. The Prince of Peace died on the cross to make peace through His blood. He died to save us from our loss and give us peace with God. The Prince of Peace rose from the grave to preach peace to us all. For in the Word is power to save when on His name we trust. The Prince of Peace now reigns above to give peace to each soul, and he who yields to him in love is instantly made whole. O Prince of Peace, descend we pray, and in us live and stay. Cast out our sin and have full sway until that eternal day. Father, we thank you for your word. May it not return void this day upon any that may be here. We thank you so much for this time of year that we can just be reminded of these truths, these truths of which we preach from this pulpit every Lord's Day, but to be able to focus on them in a
a special way even this day. We thank you so much for the plan of redemption. We thank you for your great love for a sinful humanity. And we pray that this season you would help us to be able to minister to family members and friends and neighbors who are lost and just trying to find their way. And some won't even admit that they're lost, but you look at their lives and they're spiraling. Oh Lord, we pray that you would show yourself strong, that you would have mercy, that you would save many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.